0: I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Okay, let's start off with a disclaimer. We're well aware that this doesn't seem like the type of movie we discuss here. After all, when you hear Back to the Future, you know where it stands in film history. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's the first chapter in one of the most successful franchises in the history of film, both financially and critically. It spawned cartoons, video games, toys, merchandise, a musical, a renewed interest in a failed automobile, and at one point, an amusement park ride. On the surface, we'll agree, it doesn't seem to fit the bill. But when you learn about its long road to production, casting disasters, rewrites upon rewrites, and action sequences that never left the writer's room, you realize that Back to the Future was almost, and was originally meant to be something entirely different. So let's look back, laugh at what could have been, And be thankful for the film we got as we ask, what the f happened to this movie? Have you ever wondered what your parents were like when they were in high school? Well, Bob Gale did, and that's where this whole strange tale began. When he found his dad's old yearbook and discovered that his father was senior class president, he was stunned. Not only did he have no idea, but it was something his father never bothered to tell him about. He started wondering, what other aspects of his parents' past was he unaware of? What kind of people were they when they were young? And that led to the inevitable question. He wondered, if he were alive back then, would he have been friends with his dad? Maybe we were adopted. (laughs) When he took this idea and discussed it with his writing partner, Robert Zemeckis, Zemeckis wondered about Gail's mother, and jokingly mused, Your mom has been prim and proper your whole life. what if, back in high school, she was nothing like that? That conversation between the two writing partners was the birth of Back to the Future. If you're not familiar with the writing team of Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis prior to Back to the Future, you're not alone. The duo had broken into feature films when they co-wrote the 1978 comedy I Wanna Hold Your Hand, a fictionalized account of Beatlemania on the day the band appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. While this wasn't their first writing project together, It was the first full-length film either had written, and it served as the first full-length film Robert Zemeckis would direct. It was also the first film in a long, historic career to ever be produced by Steven Spielberg. While it was a fun watch today, at the time, it was actually considered a bomb. The duo quickly moved on to their next project, the 1979 comedy 1941, which this time around was both produced and directed by Spielberg, with a bigger cast and a bigger budget. The Bobs were hopeful that their second film would be a 180 for their careers. Unfortunately, 1941 debuted to what is often referred to as generally unfavorable reviews. The duo moved on to their third film, with Spielberg once again signing on as a producer. Used Cars was released under Columbia Pictures and was met with mixed reviews. Many critics praised the ever-improving talents of Zemeckis, yet bemoaned the plot overkill that the story seemed to exhibit. With their first, second, and third collaborations with Spielberg in the books, and none of the three succeeding, the Bobs desired to move in a different direction. They didn't want to drag Spielberg's career down after three duds, but they also wanted to move out of his shadow. They didn't want to be known as the filmmakers whose hands had to be held throughout their careers, so they ventured on without him for their next film. This brings us back to the birth of Back to the Future. The Bobs pitched the film to Columbia Pictures, and SUCCESS! They sold it! In the room! Columbia executives sent the duo on to write the script. This is in 1980, and the first two drafts took six months to write. Columbia, upon seeing the finished script, for some reason no longer wanted to make it. This rejection would be the first, of ultimately over 40 rejections for the film. In fact, at the time, the only producer that saw the script and really liked it was Steven Spielberg. Ultimately, when discussing moving forward and reminiscing about the success, I'm using that word ironically. Of their first three projects with him, Zemeckis and Gale actually turned Spielberg down. Over time, the Bob shop Back to the Future around to multiple studios. No one wanted the film. It was turned down by every major studio over the next four years. Let's just take a moment to reflect on that. Studios practically ran when this film came around. A classic like Back to the Future was being treated like bacteria. If you're confused by that decision, Imagine it in context. This was a comedy in the early 80s. Comedies in the early 80s need to be raunchy, sexy, and push the envelope. Other comedies that were considered a success at the time were films like Animal House, Up in Smoke, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Porky's. Back to the Future was seen as too wholesome compared to other films in its genre. So it was passed over again, and again, and again, and again, and again. There was a brief moment of hope when a studio actually showed interest the house of mouse disney reviewed the script and liked it but turned the film down because they believed the film was too incestuous it was around this point that robert zemeckis took a break from shopping the script all over hollywood and accepted another job directing romancing the stone the film went on to become a huge success and its success would in turn change his view on spielberg producing no longer would he be the filmmaker whose hand was held by a powerful hollywood executive Back to the Future would instead be a collaboration between two successful filmmakers. The Bobs decided to bring it back to Spielberg, and thank God he was still interested. Back to the Future became the sixth film under Amblin Entertainment. With the woes of getting the film greenlit behind them, Back to the Future finally moved into its casting woes instead. Many actors came into audition for the role of Marty McFly, and the actor that seemed the best fit more than anyone else was Michael J. Fox. I wish I could say Fox was cast for the role right off the bat, but if that were the case, this video wouldn't exist. After seeing Fox and realizing he was perfect for the part, the Bobs approached Gary David Goldberg, one of the most powerful men in television at the time, and the producer-creator of Family Ties to discuss Fox being the star of their film. Goldberg's response? No, 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 no. He was not interested in putting Family Ties on hold. He was not interested in giving away an actor Whose career he basically created so that said actor could become a movie star and leave his story in the dust he was not interested in putting his hit television series in jeopardy for some film that took four years to get financed gary david goldberg passed and ultimately didn't even inform fox of the offer with seemingly no way to move forward in discussions the bobs had to go with their second choice eric stoltz as stoltz settled in for the role the bobs and spielberg saw his talent shine through in his performance stoltz was a very serious actor and was taking the part very seriously rumor has it that after the first table read for the film an assistant approached stoltz and told him that they were excited for the movie and that it seemed like it would be really funny stoltz disagreed he saw the film ultimately ending with mcfly going back to a life that wasn't his a life that didn't exist he didn't see the film as a comedy at all to him it played out like a tragedy that was his approach to the role And his performance showed it after shooting with stoltz for about a month the bobs started watching the dailies with spielberg everyone in the room was struck by how good of an actor stoltz was but soon realized that what they were seeing was not what they had written the comedy intended in each scene seemed to be lost in stoltz's performance they realized that they were making a serious film the bobs felt as though they needed to replace stoltz and spielberg agreed in a meeting that any young filmmaker should dread Zemeckis went back to the studio with an uncomfortable request. He wanted to throw away five weeks of production that the studio had paid for, hire a new actor for the lead, and start all over again. The studio actually agreed. Now that some time had passed, they went back to Gary David Goldberg. Maybe he would reconsider. Maybe, after throwing away over a month of production because of the wrong actor, he would see how serious they were about Michael J. Fox. Goldberg's response an emphatic no. No, because Family Ties was a hit show on TV. No, because he knew how lucky he was to have a breakout star in Michael J. Fox. No, because if he agreed to this production, he would lose Fox's commitment to the series. But this time, he actually told Fox about the offer. Fox's response? Yes. So a deal was struck. Fox would shoot Family Ties and Back to the Future both. He would rehearse and shoot Family Ties from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., After he was done, he would be rushed to the Back to the Future set where he would rehearse and shoot from 7pm until 4am. This schedule lasted for two full months. They had a station wagon that was driven by a teamster with a mattress and a bunch of blankets in the back on set for Fox, where he could catch whatever rest he could. The schedule was hectic, but finally, the Bobs had their star. Watching the film, the audience is introduced to Jennifer, the love interest of Marty McFly, early on. She's played by Claudia Wells. Claudia loved the script, although there was a small conflict as she had just auditioned for a pilot, but seemingly it wasn't going to be picked up, so she auditioned for the role of Jennifer. Claudia was so well liked in the role that she was the very first person cast in the film. As she was preparing to shoot the film with Eric Stoltz, the aforementioned pilot that she auditioned for was picked up for six episodes. Claudia Wells had to pull out the production. Malora Hardin was then cast for the role of Jennifer and she acted opposite Eric Stoltz. But after Fox came on board, the producers felt that Harden was too tall when standing next to her co-star. It made for some awkward moments on film, though certainly not the most awkward that she shot in her career. Harden was fired, and all of the time that passed between Harden and Stoltz, then Harden and Fox, Claudia Wells' sitcom had fulfilled its six-episode commitment and was ultimately cancelled, so she was brought back on to act opposite Michael J. Fox. For those keeping track, that's two main characters pursued, two main characters lost, two main characters hired, two main characters fired, then two main characters finally found. Thank god we didn't have to go through this with Doc Brown. Though if you want to have fun imagining what could have been, other actors considered for the role were John Lithgow and Jeff Goldblum. There were multiple changes to the story Back to the Future, and it makes you wonder what type of film you would have gotten if those elements had stayed in. Let's start at the beginning. The opening scene in Back to the Future will always be memorable. Multiple clocks in the room, all synced up to the same minute, a nightmare for set design. The automatic dog feeder and Marty hooking up a guitar in front of the largest amp in all of Hill Valley. But the film was originally supposed to open in a classroom, a classroom in 1985 where the lesson of the day would center on a historic nuclear event that occurred in 1955. The climax of the film, in lieu of the Hill Valley clock tower being struck by lightning, was actually supposed to be the detonation of a hydrogen bomb at a nuclear test facility. Because only the detonation of a hydrogen bomb could generate the 1.21 gigawatts necessary to power the time machine. The history class, being the opening scene of the film, will go on to establish that the detonation occurred not far from the high school, and would establish Martin McFly as a high school student. Ultimately, the nuclear test element had to be removed from the script, simply because the production could no longer afford it. We could speculate those because the five weeks of production cost essentially went in the can, or because it cost the studio an additional $3 million to bring Michael J. Fox on, or some other theory that will probably go on to never be confirmed, but ultimately, the bomb was scrapped. That was one of two major story elements removed from the script. It was a shame, because Spielberg really loved the nuclear test sequence. Fast forward to the Twin Pines Mall, and we get what could be, in my opinion, one of the best entrances in the history of film. The tailgate for Doc Brown's truck opened and lowered. We got lights, we got fog, the music swelled. Mari looked on in wonder, as did Einstein, as did we, and we were introduced to the time machine, the DeLorean. The motor vehicle that most resembled a rocket ship would of course be the car chosen to be the time machine. But, it actually wasn't the first choice. Originally, the time machine was a laser device that was attached to a refrigerator. The climax would have seen Marty driving a pickup truck to the nuclear test facility we talked about earlier. Marty would have rigged the truck to barrel towards the facility without a driver, then carefully climbed to the bed of the truck, in a scene that would have resembled a train sequence for Back to the Future 3, if it had ever been shot. He climbed into the refrigerator, whose lead material could withstand the blast, and the laser device would harness the 1.21 gigawatts created from the blast to transport him back to 1985. After the nuclear test was scrapped, the time machine had to be re as well. Ultimately, the decision was made to change it to a car, for a couple of reasons. First, because Robert Zemeckis liked the idea of a time machine being able to move on its own. When the questions of what car came up, the answer seemed obvious. They wanted the car to look cool, and they wanted it to seem a bit futuristic there hadn't been a car that looked as futuristic as the DeLorean. It had a stainless steel finish, doors that opened vertically, and it actually had a slight resemblance to a spaceship, which would play into a joke at one point during the movie. Also, at the time Back to the Future was in production, John Z. DeLorean was on trial for a federal cocaine trafficking charge that was all over the news. So not only was the car itself a sight gag, but it carried with it a sort of outlaw status. In addition to all the positives surrounding the DeLorean, There was also reason to move away from a refrigerator. The Bobs didn't like the idea of young viewers acting out the scene at home, and getting trapped inside the refrigerators. To avoid this potential scare, changing the time machine from a fridge to a car was a no-brainer. This was the second major story element removed from the script. Now, in a world where more films are made than ever on a yearly basis, and original ideas seem hard to come by, it's reasonable to imagine the director not wanting to let something that seemed like a solid story element fall by the wayside. Something like a main character getting trapped in a nuclear test facility makes for a great setting, after all. In terms of suspense, you'd be hard-pressed to imagine a moment that would be more nail-biting than an incoming nuclear blast. And while it no longer serves as a time machine, it's also reasonable to imagine that a lead-lined refrigerator actually would survive said blast. So then, would it be unreasonable to assume that a moment like this could have worked? If not in this story, then say, another story? with the same producer attached as a director? Uh, yes, terribly unreasonable, but that's a video for another day. We all know Back to the Future as a classic, but sometimes even the word classic feels like an understatement. Its opening weekend was modest, bringing in 11 million dollars, but its popularity grew each week, which signals great word of mouth. Back to the Future spent a consecutive 11 weeks as number one at the box office. To give you younger viewers some context, The film that has come the closest in the past decade was Black Panther, with Five Weeks as number one. Its total box office gross was $381 million worldwide. Very impressive, especially for a film with a 90 million budget. The critical consensus is that the film was funny, inventive, and unforgettable. It soon leaked into multiple aspects of pop culture, including a theme park ride. The film was even referenced in the 1986 State of the Union Address by Ronald Reagan, Where we're going, we don't need roads. In 2008, the American Film Institute recognized it as the 10th best science fiction film of all time. Empire Magazine ranked it as the 23rd greatest film ever made. In 2007, the film was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress, for the National Film Registry, for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Film 4 is ranked Back to the Future as number 10 on the list of 50 films to see before you die. Its success led to two sequels, making the trilogy one of the most successful franchises in film history. The movie has been endlessly referenced in books, films, and TV shows, most recently with the DeLorean being the vehicle of choice in Ready Player One, and extensive use of the soundtrack in season 3 of Stranger Things. It's easy to forget what could have been. A completely iconic film, with a different star, a different love interest. Even a different plot device, a plot device that would have no cultural relevance or significance whatsoever. It's also easy to forget that the film itself was almost never made over the lack of raunchiness. And on the flip side, too much incest. Withstanding all the casting issues, the rewrites and story changes, and the hell that was shopping the script, Back to the Future rose above it all, and sped off into timelessness. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads.